Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. My guest this week is Shannon Bream. You likely see her all over the Fox News channel, but did you also know she's got her own successful podcast and she's a successful author as well? Her story is next. First, allow me to talk to you about my friends, and I mean that sincerely, my friends at American Pride Roasters Coffee. I am so thrilled to have them as the chief sponsor, the inaugural sponsor for At The Mic. Dave and Faith Matthews started their coffee company, American Pride Roasters, there in the heart of Iowa years ago. They struggled, they grew, they became successful because of you. And then disaster struck in the form of a tornado, destroying almost everything they own, gone. Just in the blink of an eye, they were lucky to have survived this tornado that local engineers there, the report, the engineer's report, said winds reached 200 miles per hour on their property. It is a miracle that they survived. Then this audience and the online community that supports APRCoffee.com, y'all came through with some donations to help them get back on their feet, and I want to thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. It's a miracle in of itself here, less than two months after the tornado, that they're able to get their operation up and running to some degree. And I hope that you will explore their coffee if you've never tried it. Uh, they would love the support. And their products are excellent, and they're such good people. Please do consider aprcoffee.com as they look to get back on their feet. You can use promo code ATM to get you 10% off your purchase as well. That's aprcoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Shannon Bream is all over the Fox News channel, specifically when discussing matters before the Supreme Court, but she does so much beyond cable news. She sat down recently with me from her home where we talked about her life story here on At The Mic. Thanks for making time. I appreciate it. I am so excited to be with you, Keith. That's good. I hope I hope it lives up to uh, to the billing then, because we've got so much to cover. My goodness, I love the fact that you were born and raised in Florida. Correct. A seventh generation Floridian. Yes. But but why did you leave the state? I mean, it seems like it's perfect, right? Am I wrong? It is perfect, including Florida Man and all the crazy stories that we have down <laughs> there. You know, I wanted to it ask is. you that. I wanted to ask you, is it closer to Florida Man or in the last few years, it seems like it's the center of freedom for America. So it's almost like it's gone through this reputation change in the last few years. I think we can both have the freedom down there and also Florida man who keeps things interesting. <laughs> okay. um, we do have all kinds of kooky, you know, and I started out um, and we'll, I'm sure talk about this, but my early days as a reporter were in Florida and trust me, I covered some cuckoo LaRue stuff down there, but I love it because Florida is truly full of characters and all kinds of different people and experiences. Um, but you know, the only reason that I left, um, I did go away to college um, and then I just following my career, I've bounced around and um, I would have probably stayed in Florida had I not gotten fired for my first TV job in Tampa. Wow. OK, so we are going to cover that because I, I I can't imagine somebody calling 
the nice Shannon Bream into their office and firing you. But but we do want to get to that because <laughs> your career and the things that, that you're involved with even right now, you are a busy woman, that's for sure. But take us to Florida in your childhood when you were in the eighth grade. I guess your family moved, mm-hmm. right? About eight hours away. Florida's a long state. So you made the trek there and you had a rough eighth grade transition. Is that right? That would be correct. And I've got the photos to prove it. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. It was terrible because I'd spent my whole childhood growing up in South Florida around the Fort Lauderdale area for people who know Hollywood or Pembroke Pines down there. And I loved it. I mean, I had my same friends since kindergarten. We all went to school together. My mom was a teacher. So it was like a little family. I mean, we all kind of knew each other. My parents were divorced. So I went back and forth with them, but they always lived in Florida. So it was just kind of bouncing around the state. Um, but yes, my parents announced right before my eighth grade year, we're going to move to Tallahassee, which is eight hours away, um, up in the panhandle. And for me, it truly was like moving. I always say from Miami vice to Dukes of hazard, because that was kind of the (laughs) cultural, it it was a cultural experience for real. It it just was a different world. You may say Florida is one big state, but it's like Texas where you are. There are very distinct parts of it. And so, yeah, I, I can still with crystal clarity, see that cafeteria where I would sit by myself for lunch in eighth grade. And it's already middle school, such a brutal time. Mm -hmm. It was truly such a horrible part of my childhood. It's really the only really bad part of my childhood, but eighth grade was rough. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like eighth grade kind of scarred you for life to one degree or another, maybe didn't destroy you, but at least it's always in the back of your mind. And I wonder if when you were a young girl, uh, I'm not sure how old were you when you just wandered off for the day at the beach, <laughs> probably ended up scarring your mom for life mm-hmm. with what you decided to do with your day. Tell us about that. Experience. You know, I had to be like kindergarten or younger. We grew up, my mom, um, when she and my dad divorced, it was the two of us. And my mom was really young because she got married at like 22, had me at like 24 and divorced by like 25 or 26. Um, mm. And listen, b- both my parents, my father's passed away. My parents are amazing people, but even I can see, I, it, like I can't imagine that they were ever together. <laughs> like these two people. Oh, wow. um, and it was brief, but um, yeah. So we lived in this apartment building on the beach with my grandparents down in Hollywood, Florida. And I can't remember, I mean, I grew up on the beach. I was out there all the time. It literally was our backyard, which was the best possible, most fun thing for a kid. But I can remember at one point I wandered down the beach a little bit where they had these sort of little covered cabanas. They have like the, the little chairs that you would lay in the beach chairs, but then a little kind of cover over them. And I was always like, those look really cool. And I (laughs) went and just hung out in one. I didn't know it was something like you have to pay for and you have to sign up and everything. And at some point I remember somebody like, Hey kid, what are you doing in there? And I just kind of, you know, went my merry way, walked back down the beach to where we lived. And it was like a search party was underway. My parents, my grandparents, um, frantic. Oh no. Because they didn't know where I was. And I was like, yo, y'all, I'm always just chilling on the beach. And they're like, yeah, but we can see you. You can't go where we can't see. And I was like, well, I was sitting in that thing down there. And they're like, you don't just get to sit in that thing down there. Um, that, so that's one of the first things I remember, like seeing my family, like really panicked. And I, didn't understand their emotions until I kind of set in like, well, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. So it sounds like you've been a fan of the beach, obviously grew up in Florida. Um, Sounds like you spent a lot of time there as a young girl. Being that you're now in the Washington DC area, 
Do you miss that Florida life, that lifestyle, having the beach right there? Or is it, eh, whatever? Every second of every <laughs> oh, no. day, Keith. Oh, no. How much time do I spend thinking about how do I get more time in Florida? How do I get more time at the beach? Um, I miss it a lot. My family, a big chunk, almost all of my family is still there in Florida. So we get back when we can. And we certainly try to take big chunks at Thanksgiving or Christmas, whenever we can get down there for a week at a time. Even if I just run down for a, you know, a weekend to, to see my parents or to catch up or just get to the beach. Um, I'm the kind of person who I don't care if the beach is like 30 degrees or a hundred degrees. Like it's just my happy place. So yes, I'm always oh, scheming, wow. scheming okay. for more Florida time. All right. Well, good luck getting back to Florida as much as you can. I know that you travel quite a bit and it's not always Florida. Um, you and your husband really enjoy um, basically seeing the country, right? You guys travel quite a bit, right? We do. We were those crazy people who never stopped traveling during COVID. And mm. um, it was great. It was like you had a private airport, like we're flying private because you would show up. There's no TSA line. There's nobody there. You, yeah. you got to do the mask thing and obey the rules and do the whole thing. And you get on a plane that was maybe half full because prior to that, I think we'd all gotten used to commercial air travel. It's just not that fun. Every seat is sold out. Every overhead bin is jammed. And during COVID, it wasn't like that. So um, I stay busy with work and with things related to work and family that. So it's rare for us to be home much on the weekends, which is my favorite thing in the world to literally my amazing assistant, Tessa got me this t-shirt that says sofa Sunday dream team, Uh Oh, because uh-huh. if I get a sofa Sunday, I am uh-huh. so excited, um, but we do travel a lot. We're, we're always on the road and we didn't stop during COVID either. Um, we love international Good. travel that obviously came to a grinding halt for most of COVID. Although I will say we went to Mexico two, maybe three times in the last couple of years because they don't care. They're like, just bring your hmm. money down here. We want the tourism, <laughs> you know, right. you got to take the test to get back into the U S which is, they make it easy. So you can do that, get back on your flight. Um, but we're looking forward to, you know, spreading our wings for a little bit more. Uh, international travel in the coming years. I'm so glad to hear when people just continue to live their life uh, over the past couple of years. So that's always good to hear that that people are um, recognizing that they have the freedom to still do stuff and uh, not live their life in fear. So um, kudos to you and your husband for, for still getting out and spreading your wings, like you said. Um, you mentioned your job. You cover the U.S. Supreme Court for Fox News. When they're not in session, okay, I guess mostly in the summertime, right? Is that when you get to do most of your travel? Or are you still able to do that year-round? Or like how how stuck are you at the court? I'm very careful. The good thing is this is the most planned out place in the world. And unless there are emergency situations, which, yes, over the last couple of years, they've had a lot of emergency petitions and cases and hearings. Mm-hmm. But generally, they know years in advance exactly what their schedule is going to be. We know which days they're going to hear arguments. They do add days like, um, you know, occasionally here and there where they're going to give you opinions. And that's always tricky because you got to be fully ready. I I often am ready in front of the camera, luckily in my home studio at 10 a.m. Eastern time, ready for these um, opinions to come. And a lot of times you just get stinkers or things that they're very important (laughs) to the potential, you know, to the parties or the litigants there, but they're not the really big ones that we're waiting on. So I I don't travel away from those days when I know that I'm going to need to be there. Um, So I'm very mindful mindful of, of mapping my life around this, this SCOTUS calendar around the political calendar. That's Um, good. Another midterm year. So I just, I plan very carefully and you pray that the flights uh, are generally on time. 
<laughs> or else Tessa gets a phone call from a terminal. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to do that to her. I'm really a frustrated <laughs> travel agent myself. And I've built up so many miles over the years that um, I generally can get someone when I'm in a crisis situation on the phone and say, what can you do for me? I'll take any ticket you have on the next plane. And it's very helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, and like I said, you stay very busy and you have a podcast yourself, uh, Live in the Bream. And I, I just love, you've got some great guests on there. If people aren't familiar with that, um, I particularly enjoyed, it wasn't that long ago, um, when you had Peter Ducey on and uh, a lot of folks might want to check out your podcast if they're not familiar, live in the bream. Um, do you enjoy, and obviously you're not going to say, no, I can't stand doing a podcast, <laughs> but, but which would you say that, and you know, you can be political here, uh, if your bosses are listening, but do you prefer the running to the Supreme court covering that, doing the live hit for Fox news more, or just sitting down and having a relaxing conversation, much like this podcast mm -hmm. here, where you just, you know, yeah, let's just shoot the breeze for a little bit. I really love that opportunity. Um, I love what I do every day. There's so much, you know, you do live radio every day um, to do live TV, to do those hits at the Supreme court. There's always a, a little bit of danger potentially involved. You want to avoid that, but it's live TV. <laughs> so there's adrenaline. Um, it's interesting. It's exciting. But with guests, I really love having the podcast because we do maybe three or four minutes. You you know, on TV or on radio, mm -hmm. like you've just got a limit. You got to hit breaks and you have things to do. Yeah. Um, but I love the, the conversations. That's the thing I really enjoy about the podcast is that we can get into issues more and talk to people more. And it is a little bit more of a free flowing conversation where you feel like, are right, actually going to get to know more about this issue, about this person and be able to shed some light on what they're doing. And, and sometimes we talk to people who doing work on behalf of veterans or Afghan refugees or whatever it is. So having more of a conversation, we can explain what they're doing and point people to how they can help too. You know, I forgot to ask you when we were talking about the Supreme Court, do you think it has done maybe a disservice or, or the other way, has it uh, improved the perception of the court by allowing the live audio stream? Because when I was a kid, it was literally turn on the evening news, listen to the anchor or the reporter talk about what happened to the Supreme Court that day, and you got little charcoal drawings mm -hmm. of the justices, and that was it. Now we can react in real time by listening to the arguments at the court and getting on social media and reacting to what they're saying. Has that helped? It feels like to me, to me, it feels like the mystique of the court has poof gone away. What's your perspective on that? Well, they've been very resistant to cameras. So I think right. the days that we could get audio and when there was a really big case, like same-sex marriage or something else, we would petition the court, all of the media organizations for same day audio. And it wasn't always live. Sometimes they would just say, okay, we'll release it later today. Sometimes we would get live feeds. Um, I think it's fantastic because people don't understand sometimes what goes on there or they have this perception that it's Matlock or, you know, a few good men, you can't handle the truth. Like that stuff really doesn't happen at the Supreme court. It's way more wonky. So I think that yeah. most people would fall asleep during it, but uh -huh. you know, to cover it as a reporter, I can't take anything in no phone, no recording device. You can take a couple of pens in case one dies and like a legal pad. And that literally is all you can take in there. So even wow. Even when I attend live arguments, I can't feed any information to my news outlet. Nobody can to any of their news outlets. So it's kind of tricky. It's challenging as a reporter to cover it, but I love it because I get to use my legal background, my years in practice. Um, and I wonder after the COVID, whenever it 
the court decides, you know, to reopen or pass that particular threat. I wonder if they'll keep up the audio because there's been such a push for more access. Um, but I do think when you think about um, the arguments we had over the vaccine mandates, mm-hmm. it was surprising to some people, I think, to hear exactly how those arguments went down. So, and I think that's a good thing. Sunlight, I think, is always a good thing. It was definitely an eye opener, uh, to be sure. Uh, it's it's good when our government, when the branches of our government are open for uh, public inspection. I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got the podcast. You cover the Supreme Court for Fox News. As if you're not busy enough, you have written, correct me if I'm wrong, three books now. Is that right? You are correct. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure. And it seems like you're on a theme here with the latest two. Um, Tell us about the one that you just released. Because are you on some sort of series kick here is my is my question. I'll go ahead and just say that Yeah. because it seems like there's a common theme going here. Yeah. The first one that came out last year, Women of the Bible Speak, I think none of us anticipated the response that that book got. I mean, I grew up in church and I grew up um, in, you know, Christian school, K through 12, a university as well. So I knew a lot of these stories and I knew that they were in there, but what I find is, you know, we took them out and put them in this collection in a book. And I had people who would say to me like, gosh, I didn't know that women had such big roles in the Bible, or they were such key um, players in God's plan. These weren't just footnotes. And so there was a great response to that first book. And I love for people to tell me from all over the world and men too, who tell me who've read it or shared it with their wives and their daughters um, to say they studied this um, book together. They've done it as a book club or a Bible study at church or on their own. Um, and it was just a beautiful response. I think people, especially during the pandemic, um, I do think a lot of people sort of started to look at their faith again or interest they had in faith mm. in something bigger and better in the world. So we decided to continue with that um, because there are so many strong female stories in the Bible. We decided to do mothers and daughters of the Bible. Now, not everybody's a mother, not daughter. So, um, we look at relationships between mothers and daughters, spiritual mothers and daughters, because we as women can all be mentors or mentees to guide each other in these um, spiritual relationships, which I think are so encouraging. And who doesn't need that right now? Mm-hmm. Um, but in both books and in the new book, Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak, we look at people who are flawed, who make bad decisions. And God can always still work through that, which I think is the best. That's the best message of these books that whether you feel like your life is completely on track. And I don't know anybody who does, whether you've made mistakes and done things that you've regret, whether you're way off track, God's still there. He's waiting. He's working. If you're stuck in a time of waiting and having to learn patience and feeling like you're in a Valley, like he's not absent. It's not that he's not working. You look at these stories and you can see how he was at work and present the whole time. And I hope that will be encouraging to people. Yeah. uh, So much truth there in what you said. And it does seem that because there were plenty of women who traveled with Christ and were a part of his ministry, and, and these are in the Bible. It's just that you have unearthed, really, for whatever reason, um, a part of the Bible that just doesn't get talked about. I mean, you could talk about the patriarchy over the centuries. It's just nice that, that you have found an element of the Bible that I just don't think has gotten its due to this point, and uh, it's good to see that... Uh, uh, come out in, in a book form. And so congratulations to you. Thank Do you. we have more books along this theme of women or I have you already know. thought about the next book or where are you in the planning stages of what's next? Well, I guess we'll see what happens with this one. Um, it's definitely caused me to think of other ideas. What would we do if there's another one? Um, and I think there are a lot of different ways to go. Like I said, the Bible is full 
of story after story, parables, real life stories, illustrations. There are so many people, I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. So Mm -hmm. if this continues to be something where you listen, there are other amazing authors and speakers and people out there who have highlighted some of these women. Um, But if we're putting it in a format that makes people feel comfortable, maybe they wouldn't even pick up a Bible, but they'd say, well, I'll read these stories. Um, I just hope it reaches as many people as possible. And again, that they can see God's mercy and love that like he's reaching to them. He is for you. He is on your side. And I just think that's an important message that regardless of what state your life is in your faith walk, whether you have one or not, like he's there. And the latest book is the mothers and daughters of the Bible speak. And the previous book was the women of the Bible speak. And before that was finding the bright side. Mm-hmm. I got all these. So you I mean, done I think, your homework, Keith, okay, I knew you so, would. So, so three books in the span of three years, you're already a prolific author. So congratulations. On, uh, <laughs> Thank on that. you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So podcast, Fox news author. However, however, when you were a kid, I think you wanted to be on Broadway, if I'm not mistaken. Why, what's wrong? Why aren't you doing Broadway shows too, Shannon? Tell Listen, us. I, oh, never say never. Um, okay, okay, cool. Bro, no, no, no. Broadway is not clamoring for Shannon Bream to come to a show. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, like a lot of kids, like I did all the school plays and all that kind of stuff and total ham, I'm sure drove people crazy. When I was, I think about eight, we went to New York City for the first time and I fell in love, even though it was super seedy and scary and not yet, you know, had undergone some of the transformation that it did. And it's having right. a, another rough patch now. I was going to say, it's come full circle. Yeah. But I can remember my mom and I, and I talked about this in my first book, we're such dorks and I still am. But we thought when you went to a Broadway play, it was like black tie like top hat situation, like evening gown oh. situation. Not that people show up in jeans, you know, and Nike. So my mom and I had evening gowns on to go see Little Orphan Annie. That is awesome. Is super oh. embarrassing. Oh. And I remember as a kid thinking like, oh, these poor people, they didn't know you're supposed to dress up. Like we were the weirdos, but I'm thinking no one else that dressed is... up at us. But we literally are walking around New York City <laughs> in, you know, not the best time period of New York City, right, 70s right. 80s, in uh. evening gowns, walking down the street to go see Little Orphan Annie. But I was obsessed <laughs> after that with theater and with Broadway. And I remember I got a songbook because I grew up playing the piano, taking lessons and all that stuff. Uh-huh. And I got an Annie songbook with a score um, for the entire thing. And I would sit there and just play this thing all day long. I'm sure I drove my parents crazy, um, you know, singing <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, the whole thing. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I spent my childhood thinking that, you know, Broadway was just, they were waiting, awaiting my arrival, but apparently that's not. I, I thought the Atlanta Braves were waiting for me to play uh, second base. I've got to pursue this. Um, uh, you've been a telemarketer. All right. Oh now, yeah. Okay. So tell us uh, what's your, uh, surely there's a memorable experience in there that stands out above the rest that you just think back. That was an awkward conversation. Anything stand out? We weren't very scientific about it. I'm sure it is. It's all computerized and everything now, but when I was in college, I would go at night and work shifts during the week at a telemarketing service for the fraternal order of police. Okay. That's a great organization, right? Law enforcement, whatever. We quickly realized, because you're in a room with all these other people, the guys did so much better because they'd be like, good evening, Mrs. Brown. This is officer Johnny, whatever. And I'd be like, you're not an officer. <laughs> but who's going who's 
going to hang up on the police officer, right? Like at least you're going <laughs> to give it 10 or 15 seconds to get their hooks <laughs> into you. Um, I, I just, oh, it was such a soul crushing thing. Cause we yeah. would call and people would be furious at us. Like, you know, it's dinner time. How dare you call here oh. right now? And just the hanging up, it really was just soul crushing. Oh, um, no. I'm sorry thing, that you called me apparently. I know the one <laughs> thing was that um, it was a really great guy who ran this company that was doing um, the telemarketer. He was fantastic. And he would have these breaks each night where if you wanted to, it's completely optional, but you could come for like a 15 minute prayer time. Well, I w- attended every one of those. I probably would have anyway, but I was like, anything to get me away from this phone for 15 minutes. And who doesn't need a time of prayer when you're being screamed at 50 times a night? (laughs) It just was, it was a rough job. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Was that, was that rougher than when, when you worked in sales at Victoria's Secret? <laughs> that was a different kind of rough. The oh, people who no. were screaming at me and hanging up on the phone, at least I didn't have to see them face to face. The thing at Victoria's Secret was like, I would always volunteer, like I'll restock everything. I'll clean all the shelves. I'll do all that stuff. Like I didn't really want to have to be with people selling stuff because you would have creepos who would come in and mm-hmm. would be like, so I picked a few things out and I'd like you to try these on. And we'd be like, oh, that, no. is, that is not how it works here. No. It's not that kind of establishment, <laughs> but I got to tell you the worst, worst, worst thing that ever came and happened to me in Victoria's secret. Like, you know, if the other people are busy with sales or whatever they're doing, working at the register, then, you know, you go out and you get the next customer when they come in, like, hi, can I help you? Are you looking for anything? And it was my turn. And I walked up and it was a pastor from my church who was engaged younger guy and getting married. And I was like, Oh no, I, I don't want to help with any of this. I don't want to have any of these conversations. Like I think I have a, a, you know, like an intestinal emergency. I need to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Did he see you like, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh no. Like I I go up to the front of the store, like, Hey, can I help you? And he turns around and I'm like, I'm going to die right now. (laughs) Could oh, I just no. die oh. right now? The most awkward, awkward, horrible thing ever. Like, he I doesn't bet. do anything wrong. I'm not doing sure. anything wrong, but it just right. was like the worst. It's not, it's not where you want to. It's one thing when you're, say, in school and you go, oh, my gosh, my middle school teacher shops at Walmart, too. It's another thing when you're at Victoria's Secret. And it's a pastor. Okay, so your background, you were a lawyer, um, which obviously explains the connection to the Supreme Court. Uh, coverage, I would, I would imagine, with your background in the law. Um, tell us what kind of lawyer you were. Anything uh, memorable come from your days uh, arguing in front of the court? Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, I didn't do a ton of that. I was a young, you know, junior attorney and associate at my firm. So I would do some of the administrative hearings, um, not a ton of trials. I would be there and, you know, help with the documents and write the briefs and that kind of stuff. Right. But um, I was learning, still in learning mode um, okay. there uh, as far as taking on a full on jury. I, I would actually literally tell myself like, this is a role, like you're on law and order. I would make myself think I was acting a role to go before the jury. Cause if I thought about it being like an actual jury with clients and stuff, it was like a kind of too terrifying. It was sort of that fake it until you make it. So I literally right. would go into the courtroom with like, this is my script. This is the role I'm playing today. Um, <laughs> you know, trying to win over the jury. How cool. But I did workplace law. So sex harassment, race discrimination cases, um, wage and labor, that kind of huh. stuff. Um, I was really interested in that field. I was a business undergrad major with a specialization in management and HR, so when I went to law school, like it was just a, a good fit for me um, to combine sort of those areas. 
But, you know, I always remember the crazy cases we had. Like, I remember a guy was suing one of our clients because we did mostly corporate defense work and training. I would go in and do the sex harassment training seminars, that kind of stuff. Um, A couple of things. I remember a guy one time had filed a lawsuit against the employer based on his claim of not just a glass ceiling, like he would say, oh, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to break the glass ceiling for women if she gets to the White House. This guy's claim was based on a turkey glass ceiling. And that's what he called it in the pleadings, turkey glass ceiling, saying that he was regarded as a turkey, someone who could not do well at this job. And he wasn't (laughs) able to break through the turkey glass ceiling. Like, (laughs) this has got to be a pro se litigant. And yes, he had filed all the paperwork himself. So um, I had never studied Turkey glass ceiling litigation, but I, of (laughs) course, that's the case. that's going to stick in my brain. We also had, I remember a woman at one point who was very ill and was trying to track down the source of her illness. And she lodged it as a workplace complaint. And she said there was something in the atmosphere at work that was making her ill. So it was kind of like a worker's comp you know, claim Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But one of her um, things that she told us and presented to the court is that she had taken a Mason jar to work and in an attempt to capture the toxic air there, she had quickly put a lid on it and then taken it out for testing to a lab. So Trust me, I've heard all kinds of crazy stories. I've heard all kinds of excuses. A guy that was, you know, in trouble for alleged sexual harassment and pulling down his pants in the workplace when we went to depose him told us that he'd lost a bunch of weight. And when he started laughing, his pants just fell off. So, I mean, you know. Oh, come on, dude. No end to the entertainment. I got to know, though, turkey glass ceiling. Did he invent that term or is that an actual legal term that, that you never hear about or what? I never, ever have heard turkey okay. glass ceiling. Okay. In that case, it was his invention and it did not succeed. It did not go yeah. well. Okay. All right. But it's still, that would make a good band name, I think. Ooh, turkey, turkey glass, glass ceiling. ceiling. So somebody can have that. Keep me updated. You're yeah, welcome, okay. world. Keep it Yeah. Uh, you went to Liberty University. Man, that place has changed and grown, has it not? Amen. I mean, when I went there, and I was so excited to go, it was a situation. My husband brought this up the other night because I met him there. He went there. That's what I wanted to ask you. Where do you guys meet? Yeah. Okay. And there were times when our professors would they didn't know if their paychecks would clear on Friday. I mean, the oh school my. was so young and so yeah. financially unstable. And we would have these conversations like, okay, if I transfer right now, what schools would take my credits? It was that bad. Wow. So to see it now with this huge endowment and every possible program from aviation to medicine, to government, to education, nursing, I mean, A- it's athletics amazing. Even. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the athletics are crazy. It's a division right. one school and uh-huh. um, the facilities are out of this world. And, you know, my heart and my husband's and, and most of the alums we know, and there've been many breams to go through there is, you know, we don't ever want it to get away from the original mission, which when we were there, Dr. Falwell, the original Jerry Falwell was still, you know, walking mm-hmm. the halls and, oh, um, wow, cool. and talking to the students and slapping them on the back. And believe me, you knew when he did that, he was a big dude, um, <laughs> but just, and he never, you know, we laugh about it because he was always wearing a suit and tie. Um, he went down a water slide in a suit and tie. He rounded the wow, baseball, wait, ra- wait, rounded the bases oh, in a no. suit and tie in a softball oh, game. Yeah. Hold on a second. There's got to be somewhere on the internet. Is there footage of him going oh, down I'm the sure slide? Oh, I'm looking for that as soon as we're done talking. Yes. So he was a total character, but he cool. was like, listen, this place is about equipping people to go out into the world as strong Christians, whatever their vocational background, or as parents, um, homeschooling moms, whatever you choose to do, um, that you go share the gospel. And so, 
you know, some schools, you, you know, over time they started out one way and they become something else and they Mm -hmm. still may be powerhouses. But for us, the concern is always that it would be a powerhouse, you know, for the right reasons. Sure. Absolutely. Now, so you talked about your husband, Sheldon, where did you guys meet on campus? Oh my goodness. So we met (laughs) in college and we had always dated other people. I know it's hard to believe that I had any boyfriends before my husband or that he had girlfriends (laughs) before me. Right. Cause y'all have been married for 26 years now. That's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. Um, we had friends that kept trying to put us together and we're always dating other people. And so finally our senior year, it was literally at the homecoming game And, um, my friend came and grabbed me. She went and grabbed him and said, you're both here at this game. I want you to meet. It was his birthday that day. He was dating someone at the time, which I didn't know. I was dating someone at the time, which he kind of didn't know, but she said, you're both here at the game. I want you to introduce you guys. And so we met and we talked and I'd seen him around campus. I thought he was super, you know, hunky and handsome, (laughs) but he was also a baseball player. And I thought most of the athletes were sort of like party animal situation, even Mm. at a school like Liberty, you know, not all of them, but some of them kind of had that reputation. So I thought this guy's cute, but I'm, you know. I'm never going to see him again. (laughs) Little did you know. did it 30 years later. Here we are. That is so cool. Well, congratulations again. That's uh, that's awesome. So your hobbies, right? You're a big reader. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess you have to be, especially when your line of work is the law. Um, But you enjoy reading, what, uh, is it fiction books? Um, Is that what you enjoy mostly? Like little escape stuff or? I do. When I have time, I do read tons every single day. I mean, listen, I'm no expert on Ukraine uh, or COVID (laughs) or anything else. I mean, the thing about the job I love is that I am learning things all the time, Right. but it's an intense amount of reading every day to prep for the show and and try to learn more and be well-versed and do my homework for our viewers. Um, So when I have downtime, the rare bit of downtime, I can go through fiction very quickly. I have some favorite authors and I just love it because it kind of puts you in a whole nother world. I really disappear when I get into a book. Like my husband will say, okay, I'll see you in three days. Um, (laughs) If I really have time, because I just, it's hard for me to put it down once I pick it up. And it stems from my childhood too. I mean, my mom was a teacher. She taught me to read very early and it's a way to keep your kids entertained. And, um, we didn't have money to travel the world or do any of these things, but I knew, and she knew if I could get my hands on a book and I could, I love my library card. I actually use it. And I use libraries like a weirdo. Mm. I'm 90 years old on the inside. I go there too. If you like to read a lot, I don't want to spend 30 bucks on every book. Now, if it's a friend who has a book coming out, I will buy copies. Clearly, I want to support that. But for quick reads, um, yeah, I can go through fiction pretty quickly in a couple of days, usually for a book. All right. Now, you mentioned that you enjoy running and lifting. That sounds like <laughs> exercise. Is that right? Is that what we're talking about Come here? on. I know you do Is that exercise. what we're doing here? Okay. So, we're, so, okay, so it is exercise. So, I mean, how often do you get to, to go for a run? Is this a daily thing for you? Listen, in the wintertime, I really slack off. Um, so warmer weather though, I love it. And the hotter, the better. I mean, I actually probably run sometimes when it's hotter than I should be out running, but Mm. that feels good to me. I think it's the Florida in my bones. Um, we work out twice a week with a trainer. So we're committed to these Uh, days of lifting. And then on our own, um, my husband may do some additional and I do, you know, I do like to go run. Um, sometimes I take the dog with me and sometimes I just go on my own. Sometimes it's a walk, you know, just depends on what energy I have and how much time I have for that day. But it clears my head. Um, and I'm, I'm a pretty introverted, like solitary person. I like mm. just time by myself. Yep. Oof. I respect that completely. So you listed as, cause I asked what's your favorite music genre and you mentioned 1980s pop. You also mentioned contemporary Christian. So here's my question. Mm-hmm. 
Amy Grant, yay or nay? Because it seems to cover both bases there. Big yay on that. I did meet Amy a few years oh, ago, wow. and I was like, it's all coming together. I knew it. I just knew there was something there, because oh, that seems like we're both worlds combined right there. Don't okay. make me start singing. It's not going to oh, be pretty. No. Baby, baby. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry. I, I I did it for you there. Listen, anything uh, 1980s, we play it during the commercial breaks of the show, by the way. So a lot of times I'm checking in guests and we got Def Leppard or, you know, Depeche Mode <laughs> or something going in the background. Yeah. And they're like, you having a party in there? Like, oh, nice. to talk about life and death situations. But um, I love it. We have like little mini dance parties with the 80s in the studio. Okay. Well, that's. We see, that's like cool. to hear like a, a measure or two and decide if we can guess the song and the group or the singer you're, you're giving me flashbacks to my career as a uh, producer See? board op etc where i would i would fill that time between network commercial breaks and i would play dj just like i mean this is wow i'm having flashbacks here um okay obviously we mentioned how you're a big reader you uh have some favorite books Tell us about some books that have impacts on you uh, in your life including uh, one that i'm familiar with eric metaxas his book on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Fantastic book. Eric does detail like no one else. Right. Um, you know, he's had a Martin Luther book out in the last couple of years too. And um, he is, his level of research and detail is like no one else. Now you got to know that going in because it's going to take some focus to really get through this book. There's a lot of meat, whether it's the Bonhoeffer book, which I thought was amazing. He actually wrote sort of an abridged version. So people who only want to do like two or 300 pages instead of like five or 600 pages, um, but it's an amazing story about this man's life and, you know, your commitment to God, finding real courage in the face of real life and death danger. And it cost him his life. I mean, just super inspirational. Um, I think the Bonhoeffer book is a must read. Um, I love other, um, books that are also true stories, like same kind of different as me, um, which is a fantastic book. It actually turned into a movie as well. I think Greg Kinnear was the guy who starred in it. Um, and it, it just, the story of, um, two men from radically different places in life. Um, one very wealthy one essentially living on the streets and how they came to be friends and how important it is that we see each other as human beings created in the image of God as equals, um, no matter our, what our circumstances in life. I love that book. It's just beautiful. Um, I love everything by Jane Austen, Fanny flag, Joel Rosenberg, who writes both fiction and nonfiction, very impressively oh, kind wow. of thriller edge of the seat kind of stuff from Joel, um, Karen Kingsbury too. Um, her fiction stuff is wonderful because it's really entertaining, but there's always a message in it, um, too. And those messages are important. So I think when you can, entertain people, but also be subtly teaching them something at the same time is that's the best kind of book. Yeah. So when it comes to apps, you love the Instagram, Amazon. I love this answer. Any app that allows me to order ahead. Yeah. I want to <laughs> okay. get to my food and drink quicker. That's good. That's, that's smart. But I mean, but aren't you taking the time to place the order on your phone? I mean, the, the, isn't that time when I get would... there, there's no waiting in line. Okay, I'm going right, straight right. in. There you go. Okay. So you use Waze, and the reason I bring this up is because there have been, every time I get a new phone, I want to use Waze, mm -hmm. okay? I, I always use it, and then what happens is, every time, my phone overheats. Really? Have you ever experienced, I, I, it may just be me, because I am the breaker of things, okay? Uh -oh. Phones, electronics, it doesn't matter. But I have found, and so when I saw that, man, I circled that, I was like, I gotta ask her. You check the temperature of your phone 
next time, right before you open ways, and you get back to me because I don't know what it is, but it just makes my phone hot, so I always have to uninstall it. This is nothing against Waze. I love the app. Mm-hmm. The end. It just always seems to make my phone overheat, and I would much rather use Waze than Google Maps. Trust me. Oh, so yeah. anyway, let me know. Let me know. Oh, if, I never if heard the that before. Okay, I will well. definitely check it out. I have had my home, my phone overheat literally when I've been outside. Um, oh, but yeah. oh, but not just with every Waze. Time. Yeah. Okay. No, it's it's every time I'm outside uh, and the temperature is above 60 degrees, my phone overheats. <laughs> Very quickly. What's yeah. the deal with that? But I've I, also had it shut down in the cold too. I know you guys get your crazy weather down there in Texas. Sometimes you have your freezing yeah. and your weird stuff, but oh, you know, especially yeah. as a reporter, when I've been out like in really, you know, stormy covering situations like snowstorms, or, or you're just stuck in a place where you're outside covering cold. I've had my phone shut down with the cold too. Yeah. Uh, I remember I had to load up a U-Haul because you know, when you get a U-Haul, I mean, that's when you got to move. That's when you got to load it up. The oh. clock is ticking. Right. And when we moved from Omaha Nebraska to Charleston, South Carolina, it was zero degrees in Omaha. <gasps> and all of our stuff was in a storage unit outside. Oh and I gosh. literally had to load it up. And my phone was like, mm-hmm. it was flashing like weak, like weak picture. And then it would fade out and stuff. It was literally, you know what it was? It was the picture in Back to the Future where Michael J. Fox's siblings right, keep right. disappearing and stuff. That's what my phone was doing. So I totally understand what you mean about uh, being out in the cold. Yes. Okay. The absolute worst app of all time is TiVo. That's an app, the recording shows thing. Still? Don't even get me started. I'm going to oh, need no. some blood pressure medication, Keith. Mm. This is the, there are very few things that make me lose it. The yeah. TiVo app is one of those things. Okay. I record news programs because I'm doing a lot of stuff. Right. I got meetings. I'm meeting with my team, talking about team. I need to be able to go turn around and special report. I usually don't get to watch it live. I love um, Brett's show at six o'clock. It mm-hmm. is a fantastic uh-huh. overview of news. I know yeah. what our team's working on. I like to watch it to see what reporters have gotten, if there's anything we missed, all the very latest stuff. But I have meetings during that hour. So when I have my phone and I can just pull up TiVo and watch mm-hmm. um, anything I missed on Brett's show, like the news programs I need. Okay. If it doesn't want to, um, you know, record my Hallmark movies properly, I'm going to have to live with that. That's not like, okay, they're going to replay again. It's fine. But when TiVo and and here's the thing, TiVo on my TV is great. It records everything. The TiVo app is a whole nother monster. It may have your shows recorded on there, but it will not let you watch them. It's the whole purpose of having the app, but I feel gleeful and that I never, ever, ever, ever rate anything. I gave it a one and I was so happy to do it. Give it a one star on the thing. And I, found <laughs> I was not alone and almost okay. everybody else felt the same way. So I'm not alone. Uh, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> that's so fun. You mentioned Brett Bear there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree completely. He's excellent. And there's a story that I want you to tell us about where you were actually on a plane with him and Chris Wallace and some other Fox News folks where you... You've actually feared for your life. What happened? What was that all about? I did. We were on a, it was a commercial flight, but it was a smaller plane. We had all been down in Greenville, South Carolina, doing a presidential primary debate. And uh, so there were a lot of Fox people on this plane. We were all coming back on the same flight back into Dulles, you know, just outside of DC. 
and there was horrible, horrible turbulence and storms. It's not that long of a flight, but I thought I was going to die about 10 times on this flight because we were just being batted around like a piece of paper. You know, when you have those big falls and the gusts yes. and the drops and, um, I, and you just feel, I mean, your heart just yes. jumps. I mean, it's just in your throat. Yeah. Yeah. And my nose started bleeding, which oh. never happened, but I don't know if it was a stress thing or if the pressure kept changing or what. So the guy next to me is helping me and I'm just, you know, finding napkins and trying to stop my nosebleed. And I'm like almost feeling hyperventilating at this point. And I start talking to him next to me. He is a cardiothoracic surgeon. So this is a serious person with nerves of steel. And he is also starting to have the same reaction. And he's saying to me, this plane can't go down. My wife is pregnant with our first child. And oh. I thought, okay, I'm not overestimating how horrible this is. Cause this is a serious person next to me. He was also feeling like we might die on this plane. And I, um, I'm a relatively steady person, but I had a really rough time on that flight. And the, the pilot would come on and talk to us, but things were flying around and we just, I couldn't even hear what he was saying. And I was just trying to keep it together. I just want, I prayed a lot. I pray a lot when I fly. Cause I don't love it. Mm-hmm. That really scarred me for a while. Um, we got onto the tarmac and I was so, so grateful. I started crying and I was like, I can never get on a plane again. But two days later I had to get on a plane. So, <laughs> oh, no. um, there just there, so much for work, especially during a political s- cycle, you're going to fly all the time and yeah. you just have to get over it. And I have, um, we have actually have a friend who will not fly anywhere. And I'm thinking, I have to override this fear because there's so much in life that you're going to miss so much of the world. You won't see, or what if you need to get to family or a loved one, or there's an emergency, like you have to find your peace with it, whether it's therapy or whatever you got to do. But I could joke about it later. Cause I was like, listen, half of Fox was on this plane. And I'm like, this thing goes down mm-hmm. and they're going to be like Chris Wallace and Brett bear and some chick named Sharon green, who also worked at Fox. <laughs> oh, like <laughs> I'm going to be an afterthought, like the big stars are on this plane. Um, oh. but my, you know, my brother is a pilot and he is the best human being in the world. And he will let me text him and call him from the tarmac, no matter where I am, or even in the air. Now that you can text, you know, from the plane, he will just kind of talk me down. And one of the best things he did for me was he said, listen, the last time a plane went down from turbulence was before you were born. It was in the sixties. And I thought, okay, that gives me a little perspective that even when he says, you know, planes are built for this, they're, they're built to be knocked around. They're built to regain their, um, you know, their balance and their level, and you're going to be fine. But he did tell me one thing that was, I always thought there was an instrument in the, in the plane that measured for turbulence. Like you could see it coming. And my brother's like, there's no such instrument as that, which is like why sometimes when things start flying around there, immediately the belt, the, the seatbelt thing dings and like, Oh, we may experience some turbulence. He's like, you're just counting on the pilot in that path ahead of you providing the information. Like, Hey, when you get to this point, you're probably going to hit some turbulence, but there's no instrument for it. Wow. So it's reports from planes up ahead. Yeah. Radioing back. Okay. I didn't realize that either. I guess I never really thought about it, but that is. Don't that, think about it too much. No. Just right, get on the right. plane, go to sleep, <laughs> wake up when yeah. you're there. That's right. That's right. But you're right, though, when you say, you know, life is just a series of trade offs. It's like, I got to get there, but I'm risking this. But I like that fun fact. Uh, uh, from your brother there about the, yeah. the plane hasn't gone down from turbulence since the 1960s. I will say, though, as one who has made that uh, small twin-engine flight, if you will, from Denver International to Scottsbluff, Nebraska, multiple times, I know what you're talking about on those little planes, and and those occurrences happen, and you're thinking, 
why didn't I just drive this length? So yes, but yeah, wait, wait, wait. Wait. if at the end of the day you know that driving is more dangerous statistically than that's me. true. That's a good point. You thank tell you. Yourself that. Well, look now you're playing the role of your brother, exactly. and I'm in your role. I got you now. Uh, thank you. What year was that that uh, y'all were on that? Flight. Flight. I should know this. Okay, so it wasn't 2020. It wasn't 2016. I'm trying to think if it was 2012. Probably. My goodness. My Look at goodness. the four year cycle. Okay. Or yeah, probably 2012. I think. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just glad you guys are safe. Uh, me too. And I don't have to take note. And it took me yeah. honestly years of just gritting my teeth and getting on these flights. And I literally take out my Bible. I have a little, small mm. little one that like in my purse or my bag. And just kind of reading and praying the whole time. Yeah. And um, I've had people reach over to me like, are you okay? Because I'm like <laughs> on the verge of tears the whole time. I'm like, I'm oh, with the no. Bible. Like I'm supposed to be comforting right. you. Um, <laughs> not to the point where I really can um, go to sleep and, and everything else. I'm, I'm better yeah. until the next emergency. But then there's my husband who literally will fall asleep on takeoff. And we get there and it's like, <laughs> I remember this happened on a flight back when you could travel to Paris um, pre-COVID. And we <laughs> went over there and we literally were taking off. It was one of these overnights out of Dulles. And so you land in Paris and it's daytime. He falls asleep. They come through during the night, serve two different meals, dinner and breakfast, the whole thing. He sleeps through the whole thing. I'm awake watching for terrorists and for turbulence the whole time. And I have to nudge him and wake him up like, Hey, we're in Paris. I've been on watch. It's your turn now. And he's like, oh, I feel so good. Like I slept seven and a half hours. Like, oh. he's not, Listen, if it, if it's a let's roll situation, I'm awake. Yeah. You can count on me. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Yeah, I can't. I can't sleep on a plane. In fact, the the very one of the very few times that I have slept on a plane, I had a steward uh, tap on my shoulder to pull my mask up. I was going to say your mask came down while you were sleeping, right? Uh, uh, it, it came down before I started sleeping. So anyway, uh, all right. So uh, five possessions, your wedding ring. These are five possessions you would uh, want to keep if you can only keep five. Your wedding ring, your letters to your mom and your grandmother um, that they've written you. Right. Your Bible, your heating pad, and your eye meds. <laughs> Shannon, you got to tell us about your situation with your eyes. This is terrible. Yeah, it's so much better. But um, a, a little over 10 years ago, I, I started having real trouble with my eyes and couldn't put my finger on it, went from doctor to doctor. It took, you know, a, a long time before I ever got to the right doctor who diagnosed me and gave me some hope. And I, I was living in chronic pain, constant pain, often had double vision and migraines, but I had no name for what I was experiencing, no diagnosis. And um, when you live like that, anybody who's listening to this knows when you, or a loved one, if you've lived in chronic pain or with a chronic illness and, you know, doctors tell you like I, the second doctor, I remember that I saw when I was really getting into the worst of it said to me, you know, you're a bit emotional. And I was like, Oh no, Leap, yeah, I'm emotional. Oh. I was hanging on by a thread at that point, because what was happening uh. is, you know, I later was diagnosed and, and found this great doctor is I have a genetic condition. There's no cure for it with your corneas where most people like normal people, your cells in your eye root back onto your eyeball, but my cornea, um, tears apart. And if you've ever scratched your eye, you know what that's like. And I was doing it every day. And, um, and you know, like my doctor, um, Thomas Clinch, who's fantastic, who finally diagnosed me and helped me. Um, he said, think about it like a soccer field. Um, for me, I would say football, 
but whatever cleats are out (laughs) there, cleats are out there. They're tearing up the field, whatever. And it never gets fixed. You just send the next team out there and then they're tearing it up with their cleats and the grass is never treated. Nothing ever heals up. You know, it's never repaired. Um, it just turns into a mess. And that's what was happening with my corneas. And I was almost two years into this by the time I finally got some help. And, you know, from there, it was a long journey because, you know, there's a surgery that is not a guarantee. And I put it off for years because, um, it's pretty difficult and there's not a guarantee that it's going to work. So, you know, several years into it, like seven years in, I finally got the surgery and that's been literally a lifesaver for me. Okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your eyes weren't producing tears, right? I have very dry eyes. That's okay. definitely a problem. And and did you have to, did I read somewhere? Did I dream this? You had to set an alarm in the night, right? To wake up and put the medication in your eyes. That is right. Brutal. Before I was diagnosed, I, I just knew that I was having this excruciating pain with my eyes all through the night. So I would set okay. a timer for an hour to two hours. And sometimes you sleep through it. You're just freaking exhausted. Yeah. But I would do that and put gel in my eyes, put, you know, um, drops in my eyes, whatever it was. Well, you know, once I found this doctor and found out that what was happening is the cells on my eyes would tear so easily and I'd have dry eyes, literally my cornea would adhere to my eyelid. So then the moment you're oh. moves, whether you're having a dream or whatever's happening, you're tearing your cornea. So oh, God. yeah, I mean, everybody, literally everybody has something. Everybody I talk yeah. to has something, yeah. whether it's a physical pain an emotional struggle, whatever it is, like people are living in some level of pain. And I think sure. that whole experience definitely made me much more empathetic, which is a good thing. Let's talk about the biggest turning point in your professional life. You alluded to it earlier when you got fired from your first TV gig. What happened there? Huh? Well, I probably stunk. Um, <laughs> I had no training to be in TV. I mean, I was a lawyer by trade. I did uh-huh. this crazy thing where I went and got an internship at the local station, which was the that's the Cliff Notes version. It took several months for me to convince a TV station to let me be an intern because I had to do it for college credit. So I had mm. to convince a college to let me, you know, sign up for classes and do it that way while I was still a practicing lawyer. So I really, I would learn from, and we had amazing people there who would let me shadow them, who were so generous with their time. And many of them, you'd know their name, Sage Steele over at ESPN, um, Elaine Quijano, who has moderated a vice presidential debate and is very successful out there. Um, and these are people who had nothing to gain by helping me, but they did mm. as much as they could. And listen, I worked behind the scenes um, of that first job. I would come in overnights, 2 to 11 a.m., and I would answer phones, make coffee. I would you do the local beat checks where you call all the local fire and police departments to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I would write scripts for the morning anchors, and I would work the prompter. And then um, eventually my boss said, you know, if everyone has broken legs and is in the hospital and there's an emergency, you could go cover something. And I was like, sweet, this is my opportunity. So I started doing live hits um, here and there and was super excited learning as I went. But I came in one day and my boss was gone and his boss was gone. There was a quote management change and no explanation on that. But all the reporters who were seasoned and knew what was going on there were like, this is the worst thing ever. They always come in and clean house. They want to bring in their own people. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm working this horrible overnight job. I make no money. I'm doing literally like three jobs now. And I'm the happiest camper in here. So I feel safe. Um, (laughs) which was woefully naive because a couple of weeks after the new guy got there on a Friday afternoon at the end of my shift, um, he asked me to come by his office. And when I walked in, the head of HR was sitting in there and I was like, I am getting promoted. (laughs) 
Oh no. Oh no. Head of HR is sitting there. Life lesson. You're not getting promoted. Right. Um, and so he really lit into me. Like, I don't know why they ever put you on the air. You're the worst person I've ever seen on TV. You'll oh never make it in this business. I hope you're a better lawyer than you are a reporter. You need to go back to that. Like uh, you could have just fired me and I, or I would have fallen apart right. anyway, but like that the lemon juice squeezed into the wound was really painful. So Ooh. listen, I was out of work oh. for months and thought, what have I oh, done? Um, and it took me a long time to get my feet back under me. But um, listen, I got a super supportive husband who was like, even though you're making no money and you're sitting at home crying all day and we're going to get mm-hmm. through this. Um, and I had, I had just signed with an agent who was like, we're going to prove him wrong. You're going to get better. We're going to find that next job. And it took a while, um, but it taught me humility and that you can't love your job more than other things. It's not going to love you back. You may love doing it, but you got to have perspective. Um, Mm. And sometimes God has different plans and you got to trust that. That's great. Well, and that's a perfect segue into your um, biggest personal turning point in your life. Your faith means a lot to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. And I feel very blessed that I grew up with a mother who is so faithful day in and day out. She's the kind of person if she's like, I'm going to pray for you. I'm telling you, (laughs) she's on her knees praying for you. You can take that to the bank. She's the most selfless person I know. So she just modeled faith for me from childhood. And I saw that all the way through. And I was in church and in Sunday school and youth group and all those programs, but it wasn't until I was in middle school at a camp like the famous summer camp where I realized like (laughs) you can't just coast off your parents and grandparents and what they believe or their church membership, or even just showing up at church. I was like, no, I get this now. This is a personal decision that I make that I'm saying, I recognize that Christ sacrificed himself for my sins. I accept that he's my savior. Um, And so making that personal decision um, was definitely a realization that it was more than just showing up, knowing some verses, um, and trying to be a good kid. That's, uh, yeah, I think we all went through, I was just thinking when you, when you said the summer camp experience, yeah, all of us, right. All of us who grew up in the South have been to those summer camps. Am I right? There's going to be singing and there's going to be ghost stories and you know, it's going to be fun. That's right. Okay. So in your line of work, you've crossed paths with a lot of celebrities. You say, um, Bo Derek, uh, particularly stands out, uh, Supreme court justices and presidents that you have met over the years. I love your story about uh, actually you tripped and you fell into Owen Wilson uh, at a White House correspondence dinner. He seems like <laughs> he would be the greatest guy, but how did he react to being uh, run into, literally? He was very gracious. I okay, mean, good, good. these White House correspondence dinners back in the day, pre-COVID, when like all these Hollywood people show up, especially during the President Obama years, like all of Hollywood would show up mm. and they'd all be there. And you're crammed into this ballroom, very, you know, super spreader-ish event before COVID. <laughs> it would have yeah. definitely been that kind of situation. <laughs> but I literally sort of tripped down a stair as I was turning around. He was there and I literally fell right into him. Oh, and boy. I sort of looked like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he was like, it's okay. It's fine. Nice to meet you. Like he was just very chill and very Good. friendly. Um, but like I said, there, you know, I've told you there are some celebrities that I've met and disappointing because they were not that nice. Okay. I'm just worried about some of my people. I don't want to ever meet them. Cause in my mind, they're super nice. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. And you want to leave it that way. I'm completely understandable. Yeah. Okay. Now you don't have to tell us the name 
of someone at that same dinner that you had a bad experience with. But can you tell us the story or what happened? Yeah, there? I, you know, we it was towards the end of the dinner and there are always all these um, after parties and people are running around to other stuff or you're trying to get your car and there are like 6,000 town cars and Ubers and limos and everything out front. And um, I saw this person who is a very funny comedic actress who I think is sort of genius. And um, we're running down the hallway in different directions. And I stop really quickly and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love your work. Cause I'm trying not to say something weird. Like I love you, you know, <laughs> yeah. don't know. Uh-huh. but I was like, oh my gosh, I love your work. You're such a genius. You're so funny. And she just looked at me and she's like, don't touch me. And like Ugh. kept moving. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so, oh, no. um, so the, this is why I can never meet Hugh Jackman. Cause I'm convinced <laughs> he is a total gentleman. Right. Absolutely. So sweet. He posts all no this about his wife. Like he's uh-huh. always posting for good causes. He loves his nice. doggies. I'm like, I don't want to hear anything. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I got you. I got you. If you could go back in time and meet anyone, you list Margaret Thatcher as someone who you would like to meet. I would like to point out episode 19 of at the mic david brown had an experience with margaret thatcher's husband oh who well he was an aspiring journalist david brown and he followed him and you don't follow the prime minister's husband because the next thing you know and he tells the story on that episode how the security didn't so much care for that but anyhow (laughs) uh, tell us so why margaret thatcher why does she stand out for you you know, I think about that time period um, when she was a leader over in the UK, and I just love the idea that it's like a total girl power thing. She was a very strong woman yeah. um, who um, led in difficult circumstances. And um, I think about the friendship that she had with Reagan and how important that was between the US and the UK. And um, I just think I, we were talking about this over dinner last night. Like, why would you ever want to be the president? Why would you want to be the prime minister? Right. It seems like the toughest job in the world. So you got to have the grit, the mental toughness, the mental acuity, the intelligence, if you're going to do it well. I mean, I think it's a really tough job, but I love that she was kind of, when I was a young woman, kind of up and coming, I looked at her and saw, wow, there is this female sure. who is a world leader who is getting things done. That I mean, say no more. I mean, she was one of the early world leaders who was female. And I could totally understand that. The Iron Lady. Yes, yes. You got to tell us about the time you were sitting at the piano at a pageant. Oh, gosh. This is not a good memory, is it? Terrible. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up watching Miss America. I was never like a kiddie pageant thing. Like my parents would totally not be down with that. My mom doesn't even wear makeup. Like she looks at me like, I don't know where you came from. All of this lip gloss and these, uh, you know, fake eyelashes and everything. I mean, I was very into that stuff early. Like just the glam of it. Um, So I did not grow up in that. But when I was in college at Liberty University, um, I saw a poster on campus for the Miss Lynchburg pageant and they had great success. They'd had, you know, multiple girls who had won Miss Virginia and gone on to Miss America. The first year I was too scared to even go to the planning meeting. Um, mm-hmm. But the next year I saw the poster up again. I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for it. Um, and so I went and entered the Miss Lynchburg pageant. I had no idea what I was doing. I borrowed clothes and I just kind of threw things together. I knew what I felt confident about, which was my interviewing. Um, that was a big part of the score, you know, current events and, and being able to have conversations about difficult topics. I was like, I like that challenge, the mental challenge of that. Um, talent is very hard for me. Um, being on stage, I have horrible stage fright. 
not if I'm going to be running my mouth, which is, you know, unfortunately <laughs> I should probably do less of that forming a piece on the piano. And I got up there as my first local Miss America pageant preliminary doing this. And, um, I got up there and I started my piece. I'm really sweating. I'm totally terrified. And I literally get into the middle of the song and I'm like, I don't know what comes next. Like fear just shut down my brain. Oh, no. Couldn't think of another note. Couldn't think of anything. And I remember stopping at the keyboard and looking out into the audience and you could hear a pin drop. And I think everybody's looking at me like, oh no, bless her heart. Like the pity party. It was awful. Oh no. I just tried to find somewhere where I could pick up in the piece and like stumble my way out of there and like ran off stage and started crying. It was, um, it was tough. It was. How old were you? I was 18, 19 years old. I mean, I wasn't a baby, but I was still a young woman and um, it was definitely a blow to my pride. And I can remember, I I felt like I had done well in the interview. Um, swimsuit, you know, you do your best, you get ready, you go out and you walk around. Um, and I can remember at, there was an after party that one of the girls was having in a hotel room or something. And I remember all of us, um, went over to this after party and before I, and I had somehow ended up in the top five of this pageant thing. Um, I think just solely on the weight of my interview. And I remember Mm. walking in and there was a girl who was in there talking about me and did not know that I was obviously coming through the door. And she's like, I cannot believe she placed ahead of me. Like she was terrible. (laughs) hello, I'm here. So I really uh, thought that was going to be it for me. I just like, I don't know that I can do that again, but I got back you, on the horse. Yeah. Well, do you remember which song it was that you blinked in the middle of the performance? It was a, um, it was a Christian song, but that was arranged sort of in a classical, okay. um, arrangement. And, um, it's okay. It's okay. I just wonder if you ever hear it in your life, maybe at the mall or on the radio and you just all of a sudden have PTSD from that moment. Oh man. I, I just, anytime somebody's <laughs> like, sit down and play something at the piano, automatic, horrible, horrible memories and don't want to be on stage playing the piano yeah. anymore. And, but and, somehow and, I ended up still doing it under the realm of embarrassing, uh, events in your life. You've prepared some pretty horrendous meals. Were they so bad that they're literally listed under embarrassing moments? Is there anything that comes to mind? What What are you talking about? I think about like when we first got married and you do the whole wedding registry and you get all of these contraptions and devices. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, I'm suddenly yeah. going to turn into Martha Stewart <laughs> from like living on air popped popcorn and diet Coke for the last five years. And I'm going to get married and suddenly know how to do all this stuff. And I remember I got a lot of cookbooks as wedding gifts too. And people are like, Oh, these are the best, easiest recipes. You'll love this over time, blah, blah, blah. And I can remember inviting like all of my family over for this big dinner that I had prepared. I was like following directions to the T and I get ready to serve it. And these are like my parents and Sheldon and like all the people. And it is horrible. Like it, it, I remember one of the things I had made was this lasagna and I cut into it and it was like water came gushing out. It was like when Chevy chase cuts into the Turkey in Christmas vacation, Oh no! that's how my meals are that I've prepared. So I stuck with it for a while. And then I finally was like, you know what? Sheldon did not marry me for my cooking. I didn't have this gift. And I'm going to have to let it go. And so um, he is a much better cook than I am. All and right. We, we'll we, see. we do what we're good at and we divide it, and conquer. It works out. Okay. Very cool. So, yeah, I don't know if I've told this story uh, on this podcast before, but I can say that early on in my relationship with my wife, uh, her mom was visiting us in Lincoln, Nebraska, and they went out shopping for the day. And I said, I, I'll cook. I'll cook. It'll be great. You know, we're in the apartment there, a small apartment. Keep that in mind. Okay. And I'm cooking 
spaghetti and meatball. I mean, just spaghetti. I mean, there's nothing to this, okay? Okay, nothing I can do spaghetti. Okay. Oh, no, 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 okay. Well, then you've got me beat because the recipe called for like three or four cloves. I think it said three or four cloves of garlic. No, there should be no recipe. You just open cans of stuff. No, not not with me. You're a real cook. No, oh no, that's never been said and will never be said again. But my brain, I don't know what a clove is. A clove is the little three or four of these little guys, right? I'm putting in the big, like the entire thing of garlic and just chunk. I'm like, wow, that seems like a lot. Wow, it really smells in here. They come home from shopping. The little tiny apartment reeks of garlic. And of course, it's in a total embarrassment. And her mom was so nice. She's just like, mm, this is good. No, this is good. Mother-in-law. I do. So I do. Oh, oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, One of the things you want to accomplish in your lifetime is you want to write a hit song. Shannon, uh, do you have anything that's sitting there waiting to be given to a musical artist to record or can you record it? No, trust me, you don't want me recording it. Okay. <laughs> I've got little snippets. I've got little songs I worked on, things that have come to me over the years. Sometimes I'll just grab a, literally grab a legal pad and just put it down when it comes in my brain. I don't yeah. know if it's any good. It might be terrible. Um, right. But I feel like that's kind of a bucket list thing. Like I'd love okay. to write a song that I know how much music inspires me and how much mm. I love it and how it um, has really encouraged me through tough times. I'm like, oh, if I could write a song that does that for other people, I'd feel like I've accomplished something. I would love to see that added to your resume. Thank along you. With, you know, well, TV, TV personality, podcast host, book author, um, recording artist, or, or, or songwriter. Anyhow, good luck. Can I say one thing? Yeah, sure. I, for years, um, and you know, I love to listen um, to you guys in the morning. I'm always on a delay I, I because I'm not okay. up a lot of times. And you're, you're talking you're talking about my day job, Pat Gray Unleashed. Your other job. Okay. I love to listen to your podcast and this one too, because oh, I've been clued into it now. Um, <laughs> but I have to say for years in my mind, when I would listen to um, any of, you know, the programs on which Jeffy appeared, I thought- <laughs> <laughs> I literally thought Jeffy was like my 600 pound life. I thought if I ever see this guy, he's probably going to be like literally eight or 900 pounds. That's the way <laughs> you guys portray Jeffy. <laughs> Saw him oh, on the blaze no. one time. And I'm like, yeah. he's husky, but he's not 600 pound right. life husky. I just, what I had pictured Jeffy in my mind and what Jeffy actually looks like, he looks like a swimsuit model compared to what I thought by the way you guys give him such a hard time. You know what? Since you bring up Jeffy, Earlier in this conversation, Shannon, when you mentioned the turkey glass ceiling, yes. I was thinking that's a Jeffy move right there. <laughs> so now it's come full circle. All oh, right, no. And go. listen, I, please don't ever, I know you're auditioning other music for him for his intro, but the Space Odyssey <laughs> elementary yeah. school thing, literally whenever I hear that when I'm out running, I have to stop. Oh, it, no. it is a guaranteed make me like hunch over laughing oh, oh. almost Hold every on. time. Is it ear splitting? It feels like it's too loud when Corby plays it on the show. I just feel like I can't <laughs> think backwards. Like at what point did the band director was like, listen, we've got this. We got this concert scheduled. The parents are going to be there. We're just going to move forward. Like, it's on the calendar. The, it's on the calendar. And we're doing it. Like yeah. at what point did you think that that's okay? Like, we're going to go ahead and perform this. And then I think about the parents sitting there. They have ears. And even if they love their kids. Right. 
I would just love to see their faces like, what is happening right now? <laughs> what, <laughs> what is, is happening? happening? Well, all the other instruments are terrible. My kid is playing the perfect notes. Right. That's what it is. That's right, what exactly. It is. Mine okay. is steady. So you are on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook um, at Shannon Bream, right? That's that simple. Shannon Bream. Shannon Bream. Uh, Shannon Simple enough. And of course, uh, the new book and all the books, if I'm not mistaken, are at foxnewsbooks.com, correct? You can get the new book and Women of the Bible Speak. The last two are there. Okay. Otherwise, okay. head to Amazon or any of your favorite book places. Very good. Well, I am so grateful for your time today, Shannon Bream. Thank you so much for joining us here on At The Mic. It means so much to me. I have listened to you for so long, and it's nice to actually chat with you. Sure. That is flattering. Uh, and, and ditto on this end. We love seeing you on Fox News. So, uh, keep up the good work, and like I said, uh, make sure we're the first to know when you start recording uh, that hit song, okay? <laughs> you will be. Thanks, Keith. <laughs> Thanks, Shannon. Bye-bye. Take care. It was such a pleasure getting to know Shannon Bream, someone who I've seen on TV so many times to actually have an opportunity to chat with her was really a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you do enjoy the conversations that you hear right here on At The Mic. I hope you'll tell folks about us. Just please send them this convenient link. It's so easy, at themicshow.com, and tell them it's the most important hyperlink they will ever click on. They've got to listen. It's, it's a must. Anyway, thank you so much for making time. Next week, we're going to sit down with a friend of mine, Spencer Durant. When it comes to being outdoors, I think of Spencer. And we're going to discuss his life story next week here on At The Mic. In the meantime, if you're able to rate and review this podcast, I would appreciate it so much. You are how this podcast grows. And I'm so grateful that you take the time not only to listen, but to share. And until we do get together next week, I hope you will please go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.